0: So we come this Lord's Day to continue in our study of the rise and fall of King Saul as a lesson to us regarding the trust that we put in our princes. Last Lord's Day, we began this study by noting that when the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade was handed down, several months ago, there was great rejoicing amongst God's people. And this is an example of how God uses kings and rulers to accomplish His purposes, both good and bad. The king's heart is in God's hand and God turns that heart whatever way God pleases. For all his disorder, President Trump was under God's control just like good presidents and bad ones, tyrants, genocidal maniacs, as well as gentle rulers. Often he was reckless and seemed to have no real principles except pragmatism. He was a very poor judge of people. He did some evil things as president and he did some good things as president. Yet Mr. Trump appointed three justices to the Supreme Court who at least in the case of abortion were willing to follow the Constitution and find that it does not guarantee any right to murder babies. In the Old Testament, there are many examples of how God used good kings and bad kings to accomplish his purposes. Consider Israel's first king, Saul. The people of Israel were not willing to trust in God to rule over the land or to lead them into battle, so they demanded a king and God gave one to them. After that, the history of Israel is one of a downhill slide from one king to another until the people were marched off into foreign lands in captivity the failure of the king was rooted ultimately in the desires of the people so it has ever been with mankind we think we know what we want and what is best for us but we seldom are right about it at first god was with saul samuel promised saul that the spirit of god would come upon the king and god would turn saul into a different man and indeed When Saul finally agreed to be king, God gave him another heart. God also surrounded Saul with men whose hearts God had touched. But there were wicked men who scoffed at Saul and said he would not be able to save Israel from its foes and refused to treat him with the honor due their king. But note this, Saul had a humble heart, didn't retaliate against his political enemies, but rather Saul held his peace. Saul showed himself to have discretion, humility, peaceableness, and quiet confidence. Would that our rulers started out so well. When King Saul was told that Jabesh Gilead was under siege by the Ammonites, God's Spirit came upon him and Saul became very angry indeed. Note that this humble, quiet man was enraged against the wicked plans of the enemy and his anger was from the Lord. God's Spirit turned Saul into a brave and noble warrior to rescue the Lord's people that God had given Saul charge over. Saul sent out a call for the people to assemble for war and he used a dramatic method to do so. But Scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord came upon all the people of Israel so that they appeared to obey their king and go to battle to rescue their brethren. Note how God takes credit for the people's change of heart towards Saul and for battle. God used Saul to call together the people, but it was God's Spirit that turned their hearts to obedience. When Saul and his people engaged the Ammonites, those wicked people were completely routed. Jabesh Gilead was rescued. King Saul was vindicated. Indeed, the people of Israel were of a mind to round up those people who had derided Saul and disrespected him, and put them all to death. But Saul's discretion and humility were still intact. He refused to allow any of his political foes to be put to death because, as he put it, the Lord had wrought salvation for His people. Even in great victory, Saul was modest and placed the credit where it belonged, God's mighty power to save, and the people all rejoiced before their God. But when the King of Glory appeared many centuries later, our Lord Jesus, the long-promised Messiah, the people began immediately to reject Him, first in His own hometown, and ultimately almost all of the Jews would turn against Jesus because they did not want that man to rule over them. In Luke 4, we read of Christ's rejection in Nazareth. He began His preaching by identifying Himself as the one who fulfills the promises of Isaiah for Messiah to heal the broken hearted, to open blind eyes, to free captives, to preach the gospel to Israel. But they objected that Jesus was only the son of a simple carpenter, Joseph. You see how they adopted against Jesus the very scorn of the wicked people who had long ago scoffed that Saul could not save them. No wonder the Apostle John remarked that Christ came into His own and His own received Him not. But praise God, none of that rejection stopped Jesus from doing His great work of deliverance. And unlike in Saul's case, God did not use the good hearts of the people to deliver Israel in Christ's time. Rather, God worked through their evil hearts to accomplish the sacrifice of His Lamb, the Lord Jesus, as an offering for our sin. Peter would later proclaim that Christ was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and you, Israel, have taken Him by wicked hands and crucified and slain Him. The people with their wicked hearts and evil motives and their cruelty had slain the Holy One and the just. But like the people in Saul's day, believers today greatly rejoice with our good King Jesus. We know that in Christ, God wrought a great victory for us. Even while we were yet sinners, even while we were yet enemies of His. This week or last week, our friends in England and the Commonwealth nations are mourning the loss of their queen. Now they must all say goodbye to her. They will remember her for a time, and then she will fade away into the history books, just like King Saul has done but not so our Lord Jesus. Our King is our very life and rejoicing and must be for all eternity. He is the King who gave His life to save His people. That's a substantial reason never to forget our Savior. And because He lives forevermore, we will never have to say goodbye to our good King Jesus. There will never be a time when we gather around to remember Him Long died and gone, how noble he was, how much he loved us, how constant he was in desperate times to save us. Instead, we meet with him at the Lord's table every week and look forward one day soon to doing so in his physical presence. Now this Lord's day, we take up the substance of First Samuel chapter twelve, which is further warnings from Samuel the people of Israel after that first great victory by their new king over the Ammonites and the saving of Jabesh Gilead, and after a few introductory comments that Samuel makes to vindicate his own ministry as a judge and prophet to Israel, at verse 7 we read this, Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord which He did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was coming to Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, He sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And ye dwelt safe. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen and whom ye have desired, and behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. Now notice the theme that's repeated through this text that I think is often missed. That the Lord provided occasional leaders to rescue His people from the evil that their sin had brought upon them. In other words, they did not follow after God's commandments. and They turned aside to worship idols. And therefore, God brought judgment upon them in the form of military conquests and attacks by their enemies. And then they would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would send a deliverer to to save them or to lead them in battle. And they would promise to do better next time, but they never did. They always backslid. And you see that he develops this as disappointment of a king is the first time you've ever specifically demanded God provide you salvation according to your method that you should have a king when the Lord is your king. And the reason you got into all this was because you didn't accept the Lord as your king. You rebelled against Him. But that's what you've always done. And now instead of returning to your king, that is the Lord, you've demanded that a human king, a man, be appointed to rule over you. Then look at what it says in verse 14. If ye will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. So notice what he's saying here is the fact that you have a king now, but you didn't then, isn't going to change the way I deal with you. I'm going to judge you when you disobey me and when you turn away from me and you rebel against my commandments. It is by their obedience that they shall continue following the Lord their God and whether or not they have a king is really beside the point as far as the Lord's concerned. He's going to judge them when they do wrong and He's going to bless them when they do right. And if you rebel against the Lord, then I'll be against you just like I was in the case of your fathers. This is sort of the first hint that their plan to fix their problems, which they saw ultimately as these foreign people coming in and ruling over them, their plan to fix that is not going to work because God is going to continue to send judgment when they disobey His commandments. You and your king will continue following the Lord your God well and good. But if you don't, then my judgments will be as in olden times. Their attempt to set up an institution of power to fix their problem, the Lord is saying, not, 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 "That's not going to cut it. That's not going to work." And then next, there's an interlude where Samuel calls down thunder and lightning and rain on them in harvest time, so that. Israel can see its great wickedness in asking for a king. And Israel is appropriately rebuked and cries out for Samuel to pray for them. Samuel exhorts the people again to obey God. Follow the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Then at verse 19, And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord our God that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. They finally, they seemed to understand and grasp that they were subject to invasion and to oppression because of their sin. And that rather than turn away from their sin and obey God, asking for a king just added to the wickedness that the Lord was angry over. It meant that they had as it were, institutionalized their refusal to submit to their king, the God of all heaven. They had rather sought to transfer their allegiance, you see, to an earthly institution, which they demanded, rather than to fix the problem. You see, they didn't want to fix the problem. And Samuel responds to them, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. But all the other pursuits, you see, he goes on to say, are vain, and turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. They're worthless. They are ineffective. They will not accomplish the purposes for which you pursue them. And doesn't Solomon in Ecclesiastes bear down on this? All these things are vanity. The pursuit of all these things are vanity. The only pursuit that's of any value at all is the pursuit of the Lord and of His commandments. They cannot profit nor deliver you. But isn't this what they just got through doing, you see? They pursued after a vain thing, and that is that the solution to all their problems was if they only had a king. They wanted a king. That would solve their problem. Then they would have someone to lead them into battle against their enemies, and that would really fix it, you see. That's the thing they were lacking all this time. They didn't understand that what they were lacking was obedience to God and submission to Him and a willingness to allow Him to be their ruler. This idea of following after vain things when one turns away from the Lord, the implication is that includes wanting a king. That was one of the vain things that you followed after. Now you've got one. But don't think that it's going to solve your problem or save you. It certainly will not. Don't follow the king, follow after God. Or you will be lost and judged again, just like the old cycle of disobedience and judgment and invasion and rescue will repeat over and over and over. And then Samuel closes with this fearsome judgment in verse 25. If ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king, if ye shall do wickedly. See, they never grasped the implications of doing wickedly. They were slow learners. They did never pick up on the fact that God judged them when they did wickedly. They thought, they could short-circuit God's judgment by having them a king to save them. And so you see they're just papering over what their real problem is. But notice this, that their wickedness destroys not only themselves, but it also destroys the king. See, the king isn't like some abstract object set apart from the people. He's the consequence and the institutionalization of all of their aspirations and hope to combat the judgment that God brings on them for their sin. And so therefore, when they continue to sin, not only will they continue to be judged and consumed, regardless of whether they have a king, but so will their king. He's not going to get away with it. This verse Indicates to us an interesting principle that ultimately the evil of the ruler flows from the evil of the people. And just as the people will be consumed by their evil, so too the king will also be consumed by their evil. And with this simple truth, you see, God overthrows. Man's Attempt to Institutionalize Righteousness and Peace and Happiness and Safety. And this is a theme all throughout the course of humanity. That we see problems and we see dangers, but rather than turn to the Lord, what we do is we dream up some form, some method of institutionalizing at a human level what we... Think is the solution to the problem of our own sin. You see, Israel wanted a king because the enemies were at the gates, but the reason they were in danger is because of their sin, their disobedience against God's commandments. They thought they could ensure their safety by creating a new institution, a kingdom with a king to fight for them. But all they were doing was following after vain things instead of following the Lord. Rather than repent and turn back to the Lord, they thought a king could save them and then they wouldn't have to face the root causes of their discontent. Their own guiltiness, their own crimes, their own bloodthirstiness Their own greed, their own covetousness, their own idolatry. And that's why God said when they demanded a king that the people had rejected him, that he should not rule over them. See, that doesn't just mean that he was there to rule over them, but they wanted a human king instead. What it means more profoundly is that they were rebellious against God who is their king. And the rebellion is exhibited by the fact that they believe they can create a mechanism by which they can overcome God's severe displeasure with their disobedience by creating an institution, a kingdom, a monarch, to undo the consequences of their own wicked hearts. They thought that surely a king could solve their problem of disobedience by delivering them from the consequences of their disobedience. And this is the very way with all people we think we can solve our problems by creating more institutions and authorities and governments while we want someone to tell us what is right and to have the authority to impose it on us, you see, because we won't impose it on ourselves. And we want somebody to be an authority who will settle all the squabbles and disagreements in every area of life. We want someone who will protect us from the consequences of our laziness and our sinfulness and our lack of care. You see, we think that if only we can have reliable earthly entities to reign over us, surely all these dysfunctions, these problems can be solved for us. And so we pursue after a host of these sorts of institutions. Why, if we had a constitution that bound us, then for sure we could keep everybody straight, couldn't we? Why, if we had more laws, why, we could regulate all of this disorder and all this crime and all these sins. If only we had a system of courts that had complete dictatorial power over everything, surely they would never go astray. If only we had presidents with plenipotentiary power and undivided Article Two authority and so forth and so on. If only we had democracies. Why well, then the people could be in control of their destiny, couldn't they? And certainly they wouldn't steer us wrong. Maybe we can come up with intricate mechanisms like bicameral legislatures, Montesquieu's separation of powers. No doubt those will throttle all the evils that beset the olden forms of government. Well, maybe what we need is international treaties because we'll certainly comply with them while they'll have the moral force of the entire world, won't they? And maybe we should have a United Nations to regulate these things, to regulate all these disobedient governments and disobedient nations and so forth and so on. And in religious matters, what we need is a good denomination with a good hierarchical system of authority. Or maybe we need some popes to just declare ex-cathedra what the truth is so that we can settle all these problems and not have so many different denominations and churches. And we need a hierarchical authority in order to tell us what the Bible actually says so that people can't disagree with us without being rebuked by the ecclesiastical authorities. And then after we've got all these institutions up, then we get to spend all of our time trying to reform them, don't we? If only we could restore the courts. If only we could get some good Supreme Court justices in there who would obey the Constitution, etc., etc., etc. And we never realized that it was our trust in the institutions to begin with that was the flaw at the beginning of the whole stream of things. Rather than addressing our hearts, our disobedience, our waywardness. But these all fail, these human institutions all fail because they cannot address the underlying sin in our hearts, either individually or societally. We disobey God and trouble comes, and we propose not to obey God, but to institutionalize. Human solutions which ultimately all collapse at best and at worst turn against us and destroy us before they collapse. And we think we need these institutions to regulate us and to remove wrongdoing from us and to protect us. And they may appear to work for a time, but ultimately they fail to achieve that which actually requires obeying God's commandments, and we puzzle over why don't our institutions work anymore? Because of our sin, God judges both us and our kings, just like Samuel warned that He will. You know, the cartoonist Walt Kelly had a little possum character named Pogo who in a secular way put it well when he opined, we have met the enemy and he is us. That's where the real problem ultimately lies. As Samuel warned the people of Israel, if ye shall do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. And That's what we see over and over in the history of mankind. Not only are the people consumed by their folly and shame and wickedness, but also their institutions that they built to try to escape the folly of their sin ultimately will be consumed right along with them. Well, of course, the right attitude is to trust only in the Lord. And we read that beautiful Psalm 146, which I will read now entirely to you. Praise ye the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live... Well, I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, and he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and sea, and all that therein is, who keepeth truth forever, who executeth justice for the oppressed, who giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth those who are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the sojourners. He relieveth the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked He turneth upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, Unto all generations praise ye the Lord. And notice the contrast is that princes and men cannot bring any salvation because they're just, they're just mortals. They breathe. They grow old. They die. Their thoughts perish. But see, that's not true of God. His thoughts never perish. He remembers everything. He knows everything. He has all power. He made the heavens and the earth. He keeps the truth forever. He executes true justice for the oppressed. He feeds the hungry. He looses the prisoners. He opens the eyes of the blind. He raises up them that are bowed down. He preserveth the sojourners, the fatherless and the widows, and He destroys the wicked, and He shall reign forever. And this is really what lost men seek to avoid and escape. They will not have that man to rule over them. And you see, if you really want to institutionalize your salvation, which is what all mankind seeks to do, but in the wrong way, then there is one man who has and will institutionalize safety and righteousness and justice for His people and for all world. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And why should He not? He is that God of Psalm 146, incarnate in human flesh. He's the only one worthy to be made the King, to have entrusted to Him all the power and authority that we seek to trust to all these human institutions that fail us, that cannot save. But you remember what Jesus said to the people. He said, this is the work of God that ye believe on Him whom God hath sent. And so the Lord Jesus is the long sought after righteous King that men ought to exalt. You remember what Jesus said In that passage we read last week and this week as well. He went into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and he read from Isaiah where it says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord." And then he said to the people listening that day, this day is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so when the King of Glory appears and offers all of these blessings which are far and away above what any king with any power in any place, at any time in all the world's history ever could dream of offering He was despised and rejected of men and they would not have this man to rule over them. You see, the world goes in a circle. First, it won't obey God and so it establishes a king. And then the king fails and the people are enslaved and driven from their homes and so forth. But then when... A real king comes, you see, that's just another cycle of not obeying God. People don't obey Jesus because they don't obey God. And just like they rejected the rule of God in Samuel's day, so too they rejected the rule of God in Jesus Christ in his day. And still today, almost all the world rejects the rule of the Lord Jesus, when He's the only King who can, who can accomplish the hopes that these people claim to aspire to. That righteousness and power and justice and goodness be institutionalized in the person of men. Christ is the only solution to that problem. And also, wedded to Christ's rule as king is His mighty power to cleanse His people of all unrighteousness. The reason that the human institution of king never works is because the people cannot obey God's commandments. And therefore, they are consumed and their king is consumed. But not so with the Lord Jesus. You see, He has obeyed all of the commandments. In the place of His people, His active obedience is accounted to us for righteousness when we trust in Him. And not only so, He takes away all of our sins on the cross by paying the price to God in glory for our crimes that we might go free from judgment. So Christ is not only the institutionalization of the rule of right and power and justice, And peace and goodness. But he's also the only cure for what got us into the mess in the first place, our disobedience, our inability to obey. And surely this is one of the points of the whole Old Testament legal system, is to prove to the people of Israel, to prove to us all that by the keeping of the law may no man be justified, for the law only reveals gives knowledge of our sin. So what these people should have done was they should have cried out for a heart to obey God's Word and God's commandment. And We have that great promise of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 that He would put His law on our hearts. He would cause us all to know the Lord. He'd cause us to be obedient. And at the same time, He would remember against us our sins no more. So when we look at the institutions that fail us, we need to have this biblical understanding of why we put them there, what our motives were, and why they fail. And they fail because we all fail. We all have sinned against the Lord. And therefore, He will consume us and our King, and our courts, and our constitutions, and our Laws and our denominations and our popes and whatever other human institution we seek to construct, they'll all be consumed. But not so the King of glory, the Lord Jesus. His rule and his kingdom are forever. And he will be the consummation of the hopes of all of his people. He is the consummation of the hope of all of his people. He shall reign till he puts all things under his feet the last great enemy being death itself and so around the lord's table we celebrate that great work of salvation which christ wrought for us when he made himself a sacrifice for our sins when he took away the judgment and the anger and the wrath that separated us from god when he reconciled us to god by his offering for sin And then He is exalted as our Prince and our Savior. He grants us repentance and forgiveness when no other king ever could or ever would. Our Lord Jesus is the King of glory. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table that celebrates for us the body that He gave and the blood that He shed for the remission of our sins. I'd like to ask my father if you give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures say on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice in the offering that You made of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that He laid down His life Himself, for no man could take it. Lord, we thank You for that blood that was shed from Your dear Son, the Lamb, who was slain in His love for us. We thank You that He poured out His life for our sins, that You judged Him on the cross in our place. He paid the price in blood. Now we are marked with His blood so that the death angel will not come into our homes but pass over us in the great judgment to come. O God, we thank You that You found in Christ a pure, a sufficient, a holy, a perfect Lamb without blemish when we had utterly failed to do so. All the millennia before and that now there's no more offering for sin for he made the last sacrifice and he forever perfected those who he sanctifies we thank you that we can remember what he did at this table that he left us these symbols to remind us that his very physical body and his very physical blood which were made a sacrifice for us are all of our hope and life and health and joy and that we might Cast aside all other things and cling only to the Lord Jesus, His obedience and His blood, His righteousness in exchange for our filthy rags. We thank You that You have set Him up to be our King, to be the institutionalization, if you will, in physical manifest form of the great rule that we need in order to rescue us, to save us, and to bring us unto everlasting righteousness and joy. Thank You that we could meet around this table this Lord's day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it, this cup, is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 93 in the black book. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow, His head with radiant glories crowned, His lips with grace o'erflow. Number 93.